All right, good morning, College Park family. My name is Jeff Ballard. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm excited to bring God's word to you from Isaiah 58 this morning. So if you've got your Bible, make sure you turn there. Um, if you're a guest this morning, um, also want to welcome you. So glad that you're here with us. I want to ask you a question for us to reflect on. What is the mission of the church? Now, College Parkers, if you're thinking in your head right now, igniting a passion to follow Jesus, kudos, good job. Uh, But I want to dial in a little bit more specifically. It's important to understand what our mission is because we only have limited resources and time, and we can't do everything. So having clarity on our mission helps us to identify what are we actually doing as a church. So let's make it a little bit more concrete. As Christians... Should we be involved in caring for the poor? Should we spend our time trying to address the homelessness problem in our city? Should we support ministries that work against sex trafficking? Or should we spend time advocating for those who are victims of domestic violence? Or should we focus on evangelism, sharing the gospel with the lost in our city? Uh, supporting church planners who are planning churches in, uh, among unreached people groups, uh, helping pe- people learn how to study the Bible and learn how to follow Jesus in their personal lives. Now, I hope if you're following me, you're going, wait a minute, isn't that a false dichotomy? Um, does that really have to be an either or? The, the tragedy is that for the last hundred years or so in the evangelical church here in America, we have tended to pit these two things against each other. Uh, In the early 20th century, uh, fundamentalists and modernists went toe-to-toe theologically in the church of Jesus Christ. Fundamentalists were those who tended to believe and hold to the fundamental doctrines of historic Christian orthodoxy. Modernists, on the other hand, advocated accommodating Christian teachings to the new intellectual fads of modernity. And sadly, many of those modernists ended up abandoning historic orthodoxy. They gave up doctrines like the incarnation or the resurrection of Jesus and really ended up losing the faith. Um, But many of those modernists also were champions for justice, working on issues such as working in living conditions for the poor and uh, women's voting rights and rights for African Americans and Native Americans. And fundamentalists, in reaction to this, not only rejected their liberal theology, but they also rejected their concern for justice. And what happened was a tragic split between two things that the Bible holds closely together. A concern for personal salvation, but also a concern for a just society. This legacy has particularly affected churches like ours, Bible-believing churches that hold to historic Christian doctrines. But what we see in Isaiah 58 is something very different. Isaiah the prophet, speaking God's words, will not let us get away with being personally pious while perpetrating injustice. He won't let us be ones who are passionate for seeking God while being apathetic about defending the poor and the vulnerable. Instead, Isaiah presses upon us this truth. The justified will be justice pursuers. Uh, 
those of us who have put our, put our faith in Jesus, who've been forgiven of all of our sins, who know God as our Father, we will be passionate in our spheres of influence to pursue justice. The justified will be justice pursuers. So we're gonna see this by asking Isaiah three questions this morning. First, what's wrong with our personal piety? Second, what's the justice that God requires of us? And third, what is God's response to our injustice? So first, what's wrong with our personal piety? Look at verse one. Cry aloud, do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their transgression, to the house of Jacob their sins. I don't know about you, but when I read this, I'm surprised because when I think back to the hope-filled announcements that we've been immersed in in Isaiah 50, uh, 40 to 55, it's surprising to me that now he comes back to Israel's sins. Um, think back to me on some of the chapters just in the last several weeks that we've looked at. Isaiah 53, we saw the servant of the Lord wounded for our transgressions and offering himself as a guilt offering for our sins, bearing those sins on himself so that we don't have to. And then in Isaiah 54 and 55, God renews his covenant with Israel. Though Israel had broken their covenant with God and been sent into exile, God says he's doing a new thing to renew that covenant, to reestablish his relationship with them, and through that to renew creation. And now, Isaiah is coming back to addressing Israel's sins. Well, I think it's precisely because God is renewing his covenant with Israel that he now addresses their sins. They're going to have to turn from these sins if they're going to become the people that God has called them to be, a light to the nations, image bearers of the living God, God's holy people. Those purposes have not been done away with. What God says about Israel's sins is in response to a question that they were asking. Look at verse three. Israel asked God, why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? Israel is very pious. They're doing religious things. They're fasting, they're humbling themselves. They're seeking after God. So what's wrong with this personal religious devotion? Well, if I would paraphrase it, the Lord says this, you might be very pious, but you don't do righteousness and justice. So look at verse two. God says this through Isaiah, yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment or justice of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. Again, Israel's very pious. They love to seek God. They're doing all the right things. They're praying, they're fasting. They're doing their personal devotions, we might say, in the 21st century. The problem's not that they're lacking in their personal devotion but that their personal devotion isn't paired with two connected concepts, righteousness 
and justice. So look again at the middle of verse two. It says, they, did, they delight to know my ways as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of our God. So it's clear here that God assumes that people who seek him and delight to know his ways will also be committed to righteousness and justice. So these are two Hebrew words that are found all over the Old Testament. Tzedakah, righteousness, and mishpat, judgment here, but often translated as justice. Um, They're often paired together. In fact, over 50 times in the Old Testament, they're paired together. Even in last week's text, Isaiah 56.1 says, Thus says the Lord, keep justice and do righteousness, for soon my salvation will come. So in a few minutes, we're going to dig into a little bit more deeply what Scripture means by these words. But for now, I just want you to understand this. From God's point of view, seeking God daily and delighting to know his ways, what we might call our piety, our devotion, or our worship, must be paired with doing justice and righteousness. And yet listen to what God says when he answers Israel's question of why he's not responsive to their fasting. Look at the middle of verse three. Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. Verse four, behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. This is scandalous. Theologian Christopher Wright describes poignantly what Isaiah and several other prophets saw as intolerable among God's people. He writes this, the prophets saw a people whose appetite for worship was insatiable, but whose daily lives were a denial of all the moral standards of the God they claimed to worship. Beneath their noses and under their feet, the poor were uncared for at best and trampled on at worst. Hear this, spiritual religion flourished amidst social rottenness. So God then concludes in verse five with a rhetorical question, which I would paraphrase this way. You really think I'm impressed that you're going without food for a day while you are seeking your selfish gain through oppression and violence? When you say it that way, it's pretty ridiculous, isn't it? Israel has compartmentalized their faith. They've confined it to one small sliver of their lives. They've not allowed it to shape how they treat others or how they do life together in community. In the movie Shawshank Redemption, I bet many of you have seen that movie, uh, Samuel Norton is the warden of Shawshank Prison. And he introduces himself to new inmates as one who believes two things, uh, discipline and the Bible. He ensures that every inmate gets a Bible. He quotes scripture. He um, is, is proud of the cross stitch that he says his wife made in the ladies' church group, which says, his judgment cometh, uh, sorry, his judgment cometh and that right soon. You know, a little King James uh, English there. Here's the sad irony though, that cross stitch hides, it's on his wall and it hides the safe where he keeps the financial records of his money laundering. 
And that's just the start of his injustices. He presides over an oppressive system where he orders the beating and even the murder of inmates. He uses the inmates to further his financial corruption. And he does this all the while while presenting himself as a religious, pious person who believes the Bible. When we see this, and if you've seen the movie, you probably know we we all feel rightly repulsed at that tension between his piety and his injustice. And that's Isaiah's point. God rejects our piety, our church attendance, our personal devotions, our fasting, our praying, our singing, when it's not connected to a life of doing justice. Which leads us to question number two. What is this justice that God requires of us? Well, God tells us in verses six and seven. He says this, is not this the fast that I choose to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? This is God's description of what it means if his people really did the righteousness and justice, which in verse two, he says they've forsaken. Notice the emphasis in verse six on the need to help those who are in bondage. He says we're to loose the bonds of wickedness, that is being trapped uh, under wicked people and wicked systems. Think of the sex trafficking trade where women and children are taken captive against their will and subjected to basically sex slavery. He also says um, we're to help the oppressed. Those are people who are being um, crushed under circumstances. It might be somebody who has a crushing debt because of exorbitant interest rates or somebody in in an oppressive work environment or it could be a spouse controlled by an an abusive spouse. He also mentions the yoke twice. The yoke was a bar that went across the shoulders of either an ox or a human um, to help them to either carry or pull heavy objects. And the yoke was used as an image of slavery, either literally or metaphorically. So to be under the yoke is to be enslaved. Notice also the emphasis on care for the needy in verse seven. He says, we're to feed the hungry. We're to uh, give shelter to the homeless. We're to clothe the naked. And this is consistent with the Bible's overall picture of justice. In his book, Generous Justice, Tim Keller summarizes well the biblical teaching on justice when he writes this. Over and over again, mishpat, that's the Hebrew word for justice, mishpat describes taking up the care and cause of widows, orphans, immigrants, and the poor, those who've been called the quartet of the vulnerable. In pre-modern agrarian societies, these four groups had no social power. They lived at subsistence level and were only days from starvation if there was any famine, invasion, or even minor social unrest. The mishpat, or justness of a society, according to the Bible, is evaluated by how it treats these groups. Any neglect shown to the needs of the members of this quartet is not called merely a lack of mercy, 
or charity, but a violation of justice, of mishpat. Hear this. God loves and defends those with the least economic and social power, and so should we. So for example, listen to these three passages, which are representative of dozens more. Isaiah 1.17, this is how Isaiah starts out. Learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. Jeremiah 22.3, thus says the Lord, do justice and righteousness and deliver from the hand of the oppressor him who's been robbed and do no wrong or violence to the resident alien, the fatherless and the widow, nor shed innocent blood in this place. Jeremiah 9.24, let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. So in the particular context of ancient Israel, it was the poor, the widow, the fatherless, and the immigrant. Again, the quartet of the vulnerable. And we should certainly care for those today. All of those would still fit in that category of the vulnerable. But I think there will be others we could probably add to this who merit our protection and care. Um, A few suggestions. The elderly who are often uncared for or exploited for financial gain. The mentally or physically disabled who can't provide for themselves or take care of themselves. The unborn who have no voice at all unless we speak up for them. Um, Single parents who are bearing the burden of caring for their kids and trying to balance uh, work and parenting and meeting their needs. Those trapped in the prison of drug or alcohol addiction who, who, who really are trapped, they can't get out on their own. Victims of domestic violence, refugees, I had a great story the other day. In fact, we're praying for this. An Afghan family uh, has recently been relocated to Indianapolis, and some college parkers have helped them to secure an apartment and furniture and basic necessities, and we're also praying that they would come to know Jesus. Um, Racial and ethnic minorities. Um, On this last point, we've, we've made strides in our country but the reality is that racial and ethnic minorities still face injustices. Here's just one example. Um, last year, May 2021, the Indy Star ran a story about Carlette Duffy. I remember when this story came out, and I was revisiting as I was thinking about this sermon. Carlette's an African-American woman who lives on the near northwest side in the Flanner House neighborhood. And the article says this. For months, she suspected she'd been lowballed on two home appraisals because she's black. She decided to put that suspicion to the test and asked a white family friend to stand in for her during an appraisal. um, Her home's value suddenly shot up a lot. So here's how it happened. For the third appraisal, she communicated with the lender strictly through email, removed any signs in her home of her racial and cultural identity, and she had the white husband of a friend stand in for her when the appraiser came and visited the home. The first two appraisals came back at 125,000 and 110,000 respectively. The third appraisal came back at $259,000. So I just wanna say it again. Here's what the essence of biblical justice is. God loves and defends those with the least 
economic and social power, and so should we. Now, if you're like me, you might be starting to feel overwhelmed for one or two reasons. First, we live in a broken world with so much injustice. Maybe your heart aches like mine does to see just the vastness of the injustices that we see. I mean, we daily see pictures and videos and hear stories of injustices all across the world. We're exposed and we know about more injustice than any generation in the history of the world has. And it can feel overwhelming. And perhaps you think, what can I do? Even what can this church do to address those injustices? Or maybe you just feel so overwhelmed, you just shut down emotionally. Well, I want to encourage you to simply think about what you can do in your realm of influence. Start small. Start close. Um, In your family or your friend network, in your neighborhood, here in our church community, what are some small, concrete steps you might be able to do to address injustices? Who might need your help? Who might need you to speak up on their behalf? Who might need some financial assistance? Start close and think small. But secondly, you might feel overwhelmed from the Spirit's conviction. Can I be honest? That was me this week as I was studying this passage and thinking about God's justice. I felt, I I fall so far short of God's standard of justice and what it means to do justice. So maybe you're like me. Um, You feel that conviction. You, maybe you've helped an elderly neighbor with some yard work. You've given a financial gift to the poor. But if you're really honest, you love comfort and ease. If you're really honest, you, you don't want your life complicated um, by the needs of those around you. And you, you feel yourself unsympathetic to the needs of the poor and the vulnerable. Well, if that's you, that leads us to our third question. Question number three, what is God's response to our injustice? Well, to answer this, we have to read Isaiah 58 in context. So both of Isaiah 40 to 55, as well as the New Testament. When the mysterious figure of the servant is introduced in Isaiah 42 verse one, the Lord says this, this is my servant, I strengthen him. This is my chosen one, I delight in him, I put my spirit on him. He will bring justice to the nations. But how does he bring justice? Well, in the final servant poem in Isaiah 53, though the servant is innocent, he takes upon himself our sins. Isaiah 53, five and six. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Because the servant takes on himself our sins, we who trust in him are counted righteous or just. Isaiah 53, 11, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. 
In other words, Jesus' righteousness is given to us. His justness, you might say, is given to us when we trust in him. And Jesus lived perfectly doing justice and righteousness. He lived this out. He pursued the outcasts of his society. He healed the desperate, those who've been decimated by disease and injustices perpetrated against them in a society that was anything but just. He healed or raised from the dead a widow's son. He didn't just do, it wasn't a coincidence that he picked that person to raise from the dead. Uh, A widow was in a desperate place and the raising of her son from the dead meant she would be cared for by her son. Jesus lived out justice and righteousness. And though he was the only person who truly lived a just life, he suffered the greatest act of injustice that's ever been perpetrated. After a sham trial, the only truly just human was executed as a criminal for political expediency and jealousy. The death of God the Son, though, was planned by the triune God so that he could be faithful to his promise. This wasn't just a tragedy, a happenstance tragedy. God was being faithful to his promise to renew the covenant with his people, to forgive our sins, and to put everything right again. The new creation that Isaiah describes at the end of Isaiah 55, it's already begun through the death and resurrection of Jesus. He's putting everything right. He is creating justice in our world. Our hope is not to die and go off to heaven. Yes, if we die before Jesus comes, we will be present in spirit with the Lord, but that's not the end of the Christian story. The end of the Christian story is Jesus comes back and he makes this world the way it's supposed to be. Justice will reign. Amen. Um, So here's the thing. We, the church now, as one theologian says, we're the pilot project of this new creation that will one day be fully realized. We get the privilege of living this out among ourselves. We are called to love each other, to help each other, and particularly the vulnerable. And if we brothers and sisters would grasp how stunning this gospel message is, we will be passionate pursuers of justice. Think about this. By definition, a Christian believes that we have no ability to rescue ourselves. And it's only through God's rich generosity at cost to himself, at great cost to himself, that we're saved from our sins. Everything we have, our lives, our salvation, our possessions, every breath that we breathe is a gift from God by his grace. We owe him everything. And so Tim Keller rightly says this, to the degree that the gospel shapes your self-image, you'll identify with the needy. And therefore, we who are justified will be justice pursuers. So we've got to reject this idea that we as Christians should simply focus on personal salvation to the neglect of pursuing justice in our community. It's not an either or, it's a both and. 
to follow Jesus and to ignite a passion to follow Jesus means that we share the gospel and we care for the needs of the vulnerable. They're two sides of the same coin. So what will you do? I wanna suggest a few ways that you might apply this truth. First, if you're a Christian and you're apathetic about justice, you might need to examine the reasons for that apathy. It might be that you've forgotten who you fundamentally are, one who was in dire need and was rescued by the grace of Christ, and therefore who can identify with the needy. You're one who's been recipients of God's rich generosity and now has something to give to others. It might be that you need a fresh experience of God's grace. And so if that's you, tell somebody, tell a friend this and ask them to pray for you and with you. If you're a Christian and you're wanting to take a step or two in doing justice more or better, start close. Ask God to help you see the opportunities right around you where you might step in and take care of somebody who lacks social or economic power. It could be a family member, a friend, a neighbor. It might mean serving in our special needs ministry here and helping um, those among our church community who have those special needs or their families. It might be donating baby items for uh, lunch on us coming up on April 30th. Uh, it might be opening up your home to victims of domestic abuse, or it might just be simply letting your parish deacons know that you're available and you want to help. You don't have to solve global injustices. If you find yourself in a place where you can do that, great, do it. For most of us, start close and start small. If you're not yet a Christian, we're so glad you're here this morning, so glad that you're with us. Perhaps one of the reasons you're not a Christian is because of the injustices that Christians have participated in. If that's the case, we're deeply sorry, and with God's help, we're striving to do justice better. But you also need to know that being a Christian means to acknowledge our failure to do justice like we should, and to turn to Jesus, the perfectly just one who died in the place of we who are unjust so that we might, we might be declared, declared just because of him. And the day is coming when God will bring that full justice fully and finally, and the only part, the only way to be a part of God's new world where justice reigns is to acknowledge your own injustice, turn to Jesus and follow him. If that's something you'd love to talk about, I, we would be glad to do that. Now, lastly, Look beginning in verse eight, back to Isaiah 58, to see what God says will be true if his people will do justice. This is what God says. When we do justice, then shall your light break forth like the dawn and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call and the Lord will answer. You shall cry and he will say, here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger and speaking wickedness, if you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness and your gloom be as the noonday. And the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong. And you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. 
and your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt. You shall raise up the foundations of many generations. You shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to dwell in. In other words, if we will pursue biblical justice, if we will seek God's kingdom and his righteousness, God will bring blessing to the world through us, just like he promised Abraham thousands of years ago. Let's pray. Father, we acknowledge you are just. You are good. You are the God who not only judges the unjust, but you are the one who has come to rescue the needy and the vulnerable. We praise you for the cross, the greatest injustice that has ever happened, and yet also the the best news in the world, that Jesus, the just one, paid the penalty for our injustice and was raised from the dead being declared righteous. Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ in this room, for myself, that you would fill us with a passion to do justice, that because we can identify with the needy, that we would pursue it with all of our hearts. Um, Lord, we thank you for speaking to us through your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.